Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I was running from the living room out to the garden and I run through the kitchen and this song was on the radio and it stopped me dead. And what stopped me dead was the sound of it because it sounded so different to everything else that was around at the time. This is Music Made Me Do It, a podcast from Loud and Quiet magazine. I'm Stuart Stubbs and each week I'll be speaking to people who felt compelled to start their own successful companies within the music industry. I have to admit that I've never really known exactly what it is that a mastering engineer does or how you can become one. I know that they play a vital role in the record making process and it's them who give the record its final sound that we hear as a listener, but that's about it. Mandy Parnell is a legendary name within mastering, today the founder of her own North London studio, Black Saloon. She's mastered records for almost any artist you can think of, but is perhaps best known for working with people who make experimental electronic music from Aphex Twin and Bjork to the Prodigy and LCD sound system. Others include Paul McCartney, The White Stripes, Missy Elliott and Nick Cave, but Mandy has never been too bothered by only the big names. She believes passionately that all artists should be treated with the same respect, which is why if you go to the Black Saloon website, you'll see a list of all of the artists that Mandy has worked with, listed alphabetically in democratic order, regardless of their fame or success. In talking to Mandy about how she's built a career by obsessing over sound, I began by asking her exactly what it is that a mastering engineer does. The way I see it and the way I was trained by yeah, my, my teachers was um, we're a transfer engineer. Where mastering comes from is transferring. So when it went from recording direct to disc years ago, they used to record and just set the balances and record straight to, to a record, you know, then it went to tape. And then they'd record in the recording studio and it would go through to the master engineer where we would transfer it. So from the reel to reel to vinyl. So my first job, I suppose, is being a transfer engineer. And the other, you know, sort of big part of my job is were the first objective set of ears for the production team on the project. So if you imagine with some records, they might be in the studio a month, two months doing it, to maybe four or five years. On mm. some big albums, they can take a long time. And they can get quite wrapped up in the sound, in the studio, in the dynamics, in the art of what they're doing. So they bring the project to us and we're an objective set of ears and give them feedback on what we think about the mixes. Sometimes you might hold 
the hand of the, the production team earlier on in the process. You'll hear the mixes early and give feedback. So we're an objective set of ears and give um, yeah, opinions on that. So do you, so in the process of someone making a record, you're not, you're not in the studio no. because that kind of would actually take away. take away the thing that you are bringing to it as that fresh set of ears. Yeah. Do you know you're going to be working on a record before that band or artist starts making it and the producer's like, oh, we're going to have so-and-so in the studio for this new record and you're going to be our master and engineer? Sometimes. Or does sometimes is it that or some most of the time it's towards the end right then they Being think we need some we need someone mix. to listen to this yeah. and yeah. in final mix you know they might get in contact with me or they might have finalized all the mixes and then they get in contact with me mm-hmm. and, and some production teams i've worked with my whole career mm-hmm. other people just come new based on what they've heard or based on a recommendation and then you're going to a tryout where, you know, they say, okay, you know, there's three or four, five master engineers, let's send it to all of them and see what we get so back. So they send maybe one track up to three tracks. Right. And then you do a tryout. Mm. Um, and then they decide, you know, whether you get the job or not. And what is it you're doing in that tryout? You're listening to the... You just given the, the mix, and you're and you're blind. tweaking it, yeah. and you're just you're thinking blind. this you needs to. You don't know what they're looking for, as opposed to if somebody picks to come and master with you, and generally you're, you know, if people attend, you'll sit, you'll listen to all the tracks with them, and you know, because when I first sit down and listen, I sort of sit on the sofa in a sense, and I'll listen to everything that I'm going to work on. And where, you know, I'm just not in a very sort of focused, let's sit down and work mode, lots of things will come up for me. Mm. And then we'll talk about, okay, what, what are you looking for from this? What are you going to do with it? Where is it going? You know, what was your influences? You know, if, you know, because sometimes you might go, well, I could go this way with it. You know, some music, you, you, you might not know exactly what, what they're aiming for when you hear it especially because I do a lot of experimental music so sometimes you're a bit like mm, where does it need to go where where do you want to fit this mm. so I'll ask questions like uh, if you were in a playlist of artists what artists are around you sure and then that will give me an idea of what's sort of influence them you know where we need to fit it some things are easy aren't they you know if it's hip-hop we know it needs to sort of fit into this sound box if you like you know this mm. palette it's a good way of putting it or a house or you know but then some very experimental stuff it's just like okay i could go there with it i could go there with it you, you know yeah i think the thing about a mastery engineer i was discussing it with a, a colleague of mine and we've sort of grown up in mastering together about the training and we say it's sort of five years training to sort of learn how to do it in a sense and then it's the next five years to really sort of hone in mm. so it's really sort of a 10-year training and what we bring is just that we've listened to a phenomenal amount of music and we have loads of reference points i suppose so for you when did you start appreciating music and sound in such a kind of focused way that has led you into this career oh, this is crazy so I don't know who asked it. I got asked this years ago. When was the first time I heard production as opposed to music? Now, I grew up with music. Um, you know, my parents had a cafe in Wickford, out in Essex, uh, Greasy Joe's you know, Cafe. 
by the station and they used to have a jukebox and the guy would come around to change the singles out and he would give me all the old seven inches so my parents bought me it was a blue and white dance set and I'd be able to sort of stack a few records on and play them and I was I just I did that rather than playing with dolls I, I must be about five and the first time that I heard production was it was Queen crazy little thing called love it was on the radio my mum had a radio like in the sort of kitchen and I was running from the living room out to the garden and I run through the kitchen and this song was on the radio and it stopped me dead and what stopped me dead was the sound of it because it sounded so different to everything else that Mm. was around at the time and that was the first time that I actually heard you know I suppose production for the first time how old would you have been then i don't I, know i was going to look it up but i was young i was still in primary school right know? um but i just remember it stopping me dead the sound of it it was just such a when i got asked the question i thought about it, i was like that's the first time but then i never really thought about it as a career i went to all girls school uh boarding school then you know sort of ended up as a runaway you know my life sort of took a sort of weird turn of events and I had uh, a friend of mine Julie who worked at uh, the manor which was a residential recording studio owned by Richard Branson and she was a housekeeper she was there for the you know evening time weekends to look after bands if they needed anything she'd you know sort of sort them out food drinks whatever and she invited me down there and the assistant engineer on the Sunday before I was leaving to get the train back said to me do you want to see the studio and I was like sure how old were you when this was happening Uh, 16 okay and we walked in and it was like just this you know like moment this epiphany moment like wow what is it how do you do it you know and him just giving me this brief synopsis and I came back to London and course 16 no qualifications looked at courses we had three music tech courses then as opposed to over 200 now you know and SAE had only just started school of audio engineering they'd been here a year or two years and yeah I applied to there they took me in and I worked and was there as much as I could. I mean, when I walked in there, I didn't even know what stereo sound was. I mean, I knew nothing about sound. So this was just because you went into that studio at the manor. Whereabouts is the manor? The manor was in Oxford. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was just that you were... It was like Queen would record their rush. I mean, it was like the big, you know, they had the townhouse that was in West London, you know. Yeah. And then they had the manor, which was the residential studio, you know, with the sort of swimming pool and Irish hounds you know and it, um, you know beautiful beautiful you know. and you were just particularly what was it about the room it was i don't know i just walked in there and then you know and there was the desk and you know it just and i just listened to music music had been my savior all my life when i was in boarding school i would you know my father would sort of give me uh, radios and I would listen to Radio Luxembourg, you know, and constantly have my radios confiscated, constantly being caught by, you know, the nuns there. And then I used to get up in the middle of the night and sneak down to the main hall where they had a stereogram, you know, one of these old sort of 70s, you know, to play my records, you know. I was obsessed by music in a sense. It was my thing that got me through my life. Mm-hmm. Did you ever want to play it? I did study music, but no. Yeah. 
not my thing. Yeah, not you were. Thing. It, so you just had this kind of epiphany moment when you were in the studio and you and you thought, when I go back to London, I'm going to look into yeah, studying. Yeah, I was just this. like, wow, this is just, like this is amazing. This is how they do it. Yeah. Wow, I'd never even thought about how records were made. Sure. And I suppose, yeah, you know, my, my sort of background in education was, you know, I was very sort of science, maths, you know, A-star student, very sporty, very, you know, into learning, very much so. So it was just, yeah, fascinating. Here was, you know, this was maths coming into it, this was science coming into it, and music, hmm. sound. It was just like, wow, you know, what, what could be better? So what was studying like? What was the... Well, very hard, because I knew, I knew nothing. You were starting at nothing. At, nothing. Yeah. You know, so the, there was all these, these guys there that, that wasn't, yeah, you know, there still isn't very many women, but there really wasn't women back then. You know, it really wasn't something that was seen. So, yeah, I had to be quite bullshit. did help. I was quite punk rock, spiking here, you know. And because of the background of going through my teenage <laughs> time, I was quite bullshit, so I wasn't intimidated easily. People couldn't intimidate me. Mm. You know, very sort of strong character. So I think that really helped me sure. getting through it. And because I had a drive, it was recognised by my lecturers and the supervisors. So they they let me be there as much as I could. I would I would go in the studio with everyone. Mm. You know? I would assist it, you know, as much as I could with anyone. I just wanted to be there. Mm. How long was the course? Well, that was a year course, intense right. year course, private and cost. You know, back then cost I can't remember, but a ridiculous amount of money. So I had to work mm. and you know, get through it. And then I came out of there, and it took me three years to get a paid job. Right. I did tape hopping, I you know, did uh, studio sort of management, which is doing the bookings, you know, running the sort of reception for, yeah, sort of three years and just knocked on doors, knocked yeah. on doors. And I didn't know that I wanted to go into mastering at that no, time. No, I was going to say, what, what, were you, um, what were you thinking? Even though I studied it, we studied, you know, about layers and cut heads and how it was all, you know, reel to reels, you know, because back then again, you know, we only had reel to reels to record to. So I understood all that, but didn't really sort of know that, that would be, you know, the, the end thing. I did really like uh, tracking, you know, in the studio recording. I wasn't really into the mixing so much, you know, waffling around with delays and reverbs didn't sort of seem fun to me. That was, you know. Mm. What about being a producer? Because that's the, the the kind of one that most people would kind of just yeah, be instantly again, drawn to. You know, it was just not what you know. I liked the idea of capturing it that moment in time, and then I always just loved finished products because I loved records. So of course, I was looking for um, you know an assistant engineer job, tape up, and I'd always go to Trident. I wanted to work at Trident so badly. And I'd what go, was what was Trident? Was that a big studio? Yes. So it was a studio that was in Soho. Oh, it's and in that little alleyway. Yeah, it's like yeah, a really yeah. small street, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, sort of David Bowie, you know, mm -hmm. Hunky Dory. You know, so many records that I loved had come from there. So I, I just had it in my head. I wanted to work at Trident and I'd go by there and hand my CV in and never get a call. And sadly they shut and I, I was really it really upset me like quite severely upset me and when I ended up at the exchange Ray Staff who was my first teacher there was the Trident cutting engineer right so I got 
the sort of training that I wanted, if you like, you know, because Ray was my first teacher. Right. Which so was what, just heaven. When you were at the exchange, was that as an intern? Mm. Or was that as so a they advertised kick? in Music Week looking for assistant engineers. And I was living with a singer at the time, Stuart, who would buy Music Week, you know, and I hated it. You know, it's so, you know, it's so uh, business, isn't yeah. it? You know? um, especially back then. And I was on the phone to one of my girlfriends, and, you know, Essex girl again, you know, she was just chatting loads, you know, so I wasn't getting a word in. So I just started on the back page and just flicked a couple of pages, and there was the advert. So I called them up when I got off the phone to her, and they said, well, we're shutting the application down tomorrow. Today's the last sort of day. You know, tomorrow morning we're not sort of accepting any more uh, applications. And I didn't have a CV typed up at the time. This is pre-computers and you being able to do it at home. So I hand wrote a CV with spelling mistakes and scribbled, you know, crossed things out, drove up there, put it through the letterbox. And it wasn't until, I mean, years later that my boss, Graham, said to me, you realise that you were the joke interview. I have to tell you this story. And he still had the CV in his drawer. He pulled it out and showed it to me. We were laughing about it. He said... We asked you to come because they, they interviewed I, uh, a ridiculous about 100 applicants for three positions. They were taking three people on um, as a joke, you know, just because we wanted to see who would have the audacity <laughs> to send this CV in like this. And I got the interview and, you know, when they started interviewing, they made it very clear we do want to take on a female. It was during the Margaret Thatcher reign of, you know, women you know career sort of jobs da, da, da. Mm -hmm. so it was a bit like we are taking on a sort of woman as a, a bit of a, a token thing and i was the best of the women i suppose right. i mean again fierce blonde hair punky yeah you know, loads of makeup walked in there if your if your cv had been typed out neatly they might not have even mm. taken your mm. your meeting mm. so what did you do at the exchange then what was your so we started off, yeah, how it would work, it was like on a, a three-week three rotor. So you would spend two weeks in the copy room. So reel-to-reel copying, doing the BIM masters for the cassettes. And then you would spend a week behind one of the senior engineers shadowing them. And yeah, that was it. And then you went from the copy room into the CD editing suite. And yeah, we would do the radio edits, for instance. So, like Prodigy would come in, they'd have a 12 minute dance track, and you'd have to bring it down to three and a half minutes. And right. it would probably take you about 12 hours of editing in there because you were recording from tape to tape. It's, now you could probably do the same thing in about an hour. You know? Yeah, yeah. During that time, were you, was it a paid position in any mm -hmm. way? It, it was, From yeah. the beginning. Okay, great. So you, you were beginning. earning some money, in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, and de decent money. It was, you know, you could live on the money. But you weren't... But and that was the thing. They were very right on. They were very much, you know, we were not, you know, they politically didn't want anyone to work there for nothing. You know? Sure. They would let people come and do work experience there, but they wouldn't get them to do work, in a sense. Yeah. Know? They could help out, make teas and coffees, you know. See what was going push on. Push the tape player. But, yeah, they wouldn't be expected to do any work that would generate income for the company. It was right. very much, you know, sort of work experience job. They didn't take, yeah, they paid everyone that worked there. Mm. So when, at what point did you kind of engineer your first, what was your, what was your, the first thing that you worked on in the way that you wanted to work on it? Oh, I don't know. 
I don't know, because what happened? I mean, I, so they took on a, a load more assistants um, that we trained up in the copy room. And then they'd expanded too quickly. And it was during one of the recessions. And they had to make the assistants uh, redundant, which pushed us back, you know, that had already sort of moved up, pushed us back. And like I said, you know, sort of like learning, you know, it just got boring mm. for me in a sense, you know, because they didn't know how long it would take until I went up to the next stage of actually mastering for myself. So then I met my husband, went off to New Orleans, got married, had a son. Had you been keeping your hand in whilst you were in New Orleans and um, working in that world? or you not, I'd been working, but not in mastering. I got offered a job um, with Alan Tucson at uh, Saint Studios because as part of what I was doing at the exchange before I left, um, we had one of the first... Uh, DAWs, digital audio workstations, to come in for mastering called Sonic Solutions. And they had a software called No Noise, which was a restoration software. And I'd learnt that. And when I went out to New Orleans, of course, I took my CV around everywhere and everyone was a bit sort of, uh, I'd say, well, they even said it to me out socially that I was a bit overqualified because of the artists I'd worked with at the exchange. Mm. And who, who were those artists, by the way? Well, you know, just anyone that was hip at the time, you know. It was just, yeah. You, you think XL had started, so we were doing all the stuff there. You know, so all the early XL releases, alt mute records. You know, I don't know. I mean, just, yeah, everyone. Mm. You know, sort of Depeche Mode, Erasure. We did some stuff with Paul McCartney, Elton John, you know. Maxi Priest, Prodigy. There's a bit on your... on I checked your homepage before I came here and when you click on the artists yeah, I need to update that I haven't done that for a while I didn't so realise though that those would have been from the very beginning mm. through working at the exchange mm. I presumed that you would have kind of worked on really small tiny things and then you slowly slowly get to the, the big stuff you know mm. but that's not the case it's like you're straight in you're straight in when you're at a studio like that yeah, you're, mm. you're straight in straight was the exchange in. then a, uh, it was like the the mastering studio. Well, you had the you you had Terham House, um, you had Abbey Road, uh, you had Sony Studios, uh, you had Porky's Prime Cut. I think what else? There was quite a few studios around. But where the exchange came about was Graham and John had worked at um, I think it was Sound Masters, which was Island Records mastering room. And when Ireland decided to get rid of the mastering room, they gave Graham and John the equipment and encouraged them to set up on their own. And that's where the exchange come from. Uh, okay. They set up the exchange. So here were two great engineers. I mean, you know, and John did all the Bob Marley stuff, really. Yeah. And loads of it I mean just loads you know but that was the big one for me because I loved all the, all the sound of Bob Marley stuff mm. and then Graham would do things like the specials Grace Jones so you know I had you know, these two guys teach me and then Ray that had done you know, Led Zeppelin which you know, big big fan when I was young of Led Zeppelin David Bowie Hunky Dory I played it endlessly I didn't even know Ray had mastered Hunky Dory until I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Right. Uh, when Ken, who produced it, did a talk. 
and uh, was talking about and, and said to Ray, do you remember when we cut it? And I was sitting next to him and I just looked at him and I went, what, you cut that one? Really? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I had these three sort of incredible teachers. Right. So because of that, where um, John and Graham had all this work from Soundmasters, these clients came with them to the exchange. In the five years that Mandy spent in New Orleans, it proved difficult for her to secure work as a mastering engineer. She says that being a woman in the role had made it hard enough when she was back in London. But in a southern state of America, where gender equality in the workplace was even less progressive, it was practically impossible. Being obsessed with learning didn't help matters either, allowing men who felt intimidated by her superior knowledge to simply claim that she was overqualified. When she returned to London, the exchange were quick to offer her a senior job. But what New Orleans had given her was a renewed love for the emotion of music, something that years of obsessing over sound quality had started to wear down. But what happened to me when I was at the exchange before I went to New Orleans, I had become very critical of sound. And I think I went through a phase there where I wasn't enjoying music as much. I was still, I wasn't really listening to new music. I was just going back to old favorites and was very critical. And then when I moved out to New Orleans, here I was hearing the most incredible musicians on the worst sound systems you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, it's still like that out there, you know, you go out there and you're like, oh my God, this sounds awful. And I think that's where I realized this emotion, the emotion behind it, that you'd see these guys just playing their heart out and just, or just grooving and being so funky. And it just surpassed sound in a sense, the energy of it. And then that made me reflect on how I used to listen to music when we were young, you know, we don't care. You know, we listen to music just because it moves us emotionally. And it's something that I really try and get across to young people when they're, they're sort of studying, especially when they're doing their degrees and stuff and they're in it and they're becoming so technical and clinical. And, you know, part of my lecture is to bring them back to that point of emotion of, you know, why did you choose to that, listen to that music when you were younger? What was it? And it's just pure emotion, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It brings you joy, it makes you sad, it makes you angry, you know. It just fuels your emotions, you know. And that's where some of my, you know, sort of theory is about how I listen now, is about thinking about that, thinking about the delivery of the emotion, transferring the emotion through the system. And I talk about stuff that John worked on uh, with Bob Marley, and I always talk about jamming the track, Bob Marley mm -hmm. jamming. Now, if we think about that track, it doesn't matter where in the world you hear it, on what piece of equipment, what speaker it comes out of, it does exactly the same thing. You all start just jamming, you start nodding your head to it, you know. And what I do in the lecture is I'll play it and, you know, all the kids will start just jamming <laughs> their head around. And it's the perfect example because people go, oh, you know, isn't it frustrating? MP3s and it sounds shit and they're playing it on their speaker, you know, on their phones and it's crap and da da da. But when we're young, what are we listening to? Yeah. The pure emotion. It's, it's just emotion. It's just raw. That's the most important thing. And things can sound not necessarily great from a technical viewpoint in the studio. But still, the emotion cuts through. 
you know, it's like I talk about, I love, you know, you know, I grew up with punk, you know, and you think about Iggy Pop and the Stooges. I mean, some of that stuff is just raw and nasty and not, you know, amazing sonically at all. But yeah, it's just fantastic. The emotion is yeah. just fierce. And it's about that, really. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I was going to ask you if there was a moment, if there's been a moment in your career where you kind of like a turning point or a point where you stepped up to like another level of, of what you do. But it sounds like you've kind of already answered that because you were working on big things from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, how, I was, was there just, a moment? You're continually growing. The, the problem is the further along in your career you go, the curve of learning tells off in a sense. You know? mm. And when you become, in a sense, uh, very well respected for your theories and your ears and what you bring to the table and you ask to get involved in, you know, beta testing, you know, because of your ear base and, you know, you're brainstorming with people that make equipment or that are writing software, then your sort of learning curve sort of tells off, mm. which is, is a bit strange. But in the sense of what you do in the room, you know, with the sound, you're... Every, everything that comes in the door is different. No two pieces of music sound the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So there's always this continuous movement and flow and changing, and you're constantly trying to find something, you know, that, okay, maybe this will work, and it might be something that you've never done before. Mm. You know? But that's what works for that piece of music. And the same when you're cutting vinyl, because... Yeah, you know, I come with all this sort of knowledge, you know, learned sort of experience of ears. So I think I hear this and I'm, okay, that's what it's going to sound like when it comes back. And then you'll play the test card and go, oh, no, it didn't do that. Yeah. So there's always this unknown. Sure. Sense, you know? Well, talking about that kind of variation, like of, of the, the artists that you've worked with, there's so many, but they are so varied within them there's everyone from Aphex Twin to Paul McCartney to the XX Bjork all sorts of sounds some really harsh and discordant sounds some just very melodic some really minimal some like maximalist 
bangers. Personally, do you feel that, do you have to love the music to work on the track? No. Or do you like all music or do you just not have to? No, I think the ethos, yeah, and it was, um, yeah, my teachers, Ray and John and Graham, all of them sort of came from this, is sort of explaining that when an artist, a production team, you know, bring their work for you to work on, you have to view it, this is their life's work. This mm. is them bearing their soul. And you're taking their baby on. So therefore, you need to treat it like it's your own and do the best you can by it. So when that's your starting point at the beginning of the session, then you find a way to get through it. It was like Aphex, I found really hard, you know. I really, you know, I, I listened to it uh, uh, quite a few times, you know. And, you know, a couple of mornings got up and thought, okay, I'm going to master it. And it just didn't work. And on the day that I mastered the album, I'd worked with a young indie band. The whole band had come in. I was really claustrophobic in the studio. And it was a quite intense dynamic, you know, of personalities in the room and keeping control. And, you know, we sort of finished. They left, I don't know, seven, eight o'clock in the evening. And, you know, I sort of chilled out for a couple of hours. And I had a... A guy that was interning from Columbia, Julian, was here with me. And I said to him, do you, do you fancy pulling an all-nighter with me? And he looked at me and went, I went, I think I'm going to do the Apex Twin album now. And I just dimmed all the lights in the studio and just had my own little rave. And it was just like the perfect time to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I just totally knew what I wanted to do. I just had this sort of moment of, oh, that's where I'm going to go with it. Because, of course, it was a, a collection of music over a varied amount of time mm. so you know it was like to get a flow to bring it together was just a an interesting sort of concept if you like sure so when that band were with you mm. earlier that day were they with you how comes they were there when you were when, when you're working with some bands they they just want to see their baby all the way through right okay. and they want to be there to make the decisions to hear it to you know some of them just you know it's the first first album they're mastering they just want to experience it sure and i think it's really great for artists young producers to attend the mastering because that's where they're going to learn so much mm. Yeah. learn so much I mean I help develop some young producers and artists you know where they, they bring their stuff in and I'll send them back to remix and you know we just develop it along the way because I don't want to take their money and just transfer something for the sake of the money often with young bands that come in I spend a lot longer than I charge them you know just on that on helping them to develop and talking about what they're doing their process you know how to make it better hmm. holding their hand our job is in a sense you know we need to bring it to the public so it needs to be the best it can be mm. and I'm not about numbers I mean yeah you look on my website and you say it's just amazing but the whole theory behind me putting every artist and I do need to update it you know I haven't done it for I think two years you know every artist on there is to get the point across that it doesn't matter whether you're famous and have a huge team behind you or whether you're a man in bedroom doing it just for maybe 10 people what does it matter mm. you should have the same 100% of me in that room at that time what qualities 
do you think make for a good mastering engineer? Patience. Is that the key? Yeah. Attention to detail. I mean, I discovered last year that I've got ADHD and ADD. I think them qualities, I think, you know, now I think about all the master engineers, I know the ADD side of it, that very hyper-focus and attention to detail is you know, quite um, an important thing because that is what our job is. It's dotting the I's, crossing the T's. You know, bear in mind, we're all humans, we make mistakes, but, mm. yeah, it's that attention to detail. And in your career, have you, I mean, it sounds like your career's been so illustrious and you've won some big awards mm. and worked with some huge artists yeah i've been very blessed have you has there been any any moments in it where you've either felt that you've made a huge mistake not in doing what you're doing but have, have you had any huge bumps in the road within your career or like yeah i mean you, you have that you know um where people don't like what you've done or you know like I say, you know, very competitive background. It's, you know, something I've been discussing with my mother recently about how you you brought me up to be very goal orientated. So what do you do when you've achieved all your goals? Mm. Now now what do I do? You know, and it's like I'm not sure it's necessarily a good thing to be like that given that I've got an ADHD, ADD brain. So yeah, some of the knockbacks, you know, when people are upset with you can be hard. I have had moments where I thought about changing careers because it's very tiring. It takes a lot of energy, you know, it can take its toll. Mm. But then what else would I do? And I love it. The thing is, I love sitting at my board and doing the work. And I, I, I had to really analyze what got me down, what gets me down. And it's actually, I suppose, more the business side of it. That side of it gets me down. If I could just sit in there you know, with the artists and just, you know, do the art with them and not have to worry about anything else. That's what I do. I didn't really want my own business and it happened from a series of events in my life and it's great. I don't think I could ever go work for somebody now. I don't think they'd be able to control my madness with it and my, you know, sort of (laughs) down the rabbit hole journeys I go into in the studio, you know, because it might not be cost effective on some of the the jobs for them, but it's just what I do, you know, as part of my madness and I can do it with my own business. But running a business is, that's what takes the fun out of it. Yeah. When when you're arguing with teams of people that you work with your whole career and they're knocking you for a lot of money, it becomes sort of personal because you view these people as your friends and then you discover that actually that's the hard thing for me, the business side of it. Mm. You know? Yeah. I don't, I suppose I don't really live in the real world. Sure. Know? Would you have any advice for anyone listening to this that thinks that they would like to become a mastering engineer now? What would, would be your advice to get into it? Don't give up because it's going to be hard. The, the competition these young people have coming into the industry now is, is ridiculous. If you think, you know, like I said, we, there was three music tech, music production courses when I came into it. Now we've got over 200. Mm. So you think 200 courses churning out students every year and degrees, and but there isn't the jobs. There's less jobs now, in a sense, than there was when I came into it. When I came into it, there was a studio just about in every corner of London. We don't have the studios, so the infrastructure of jobs isn't there. 
just follow it, follow your passion. Know that you're not going to earn a fortune. I see it more like uh, what I'd say to people is it's a lifestyle choice. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, all of us, especially you know, that work on the more independent side of stuff, I think it's a lifestyle choice. We come into it because we have passion for it. So have that passion. If it's what you want to do, follow it. You know? Your parents are going to be disappointed, probably. Some of them might really support you. Others are going to be like, what, you're, you're working all them hours and you know, you're only getting paid that for it. You know, they don't really understand. But if it's what you want to do, do it. Yeah. Don't give up. I didn't give up. It was tough. I mean, it was tough for me back then. The toughness for me back then was part of the, the fact that I was a female. We don't have that, that so much in the industry now. That's really changed mm. a lot. The equality, you know, I think is great, really. It's really come a long way and still going further and further. But yeah, if it's what you want, don't, don't quit. Just find a way. Music Made Me Do It is produced by Dream Team and Loud and Quiet and edited by Emma Snook. For more information, please visit loudandquiet.com and subscribe on your favourite podcast app to receive all future episodes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.